I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you very much, and thank you all for coming, because I need a bit of cheering up. I was watching the new president give his speech in the LRB offices when, just to make sure that I didn't get above myself, I was told about a Facebook group called Jenny Disky is a Knob. (laughs) Some students in Aberystwyth who are apparently forced to read my books and they discuss with each other what hell it is and how vile. So I joined the group, obviously. But it's very nice to see you all, really. Um, apology for the woman writing. Um, it's, in fact, the title, I wish it were my title, but it's not. It's Marie de Gournay, um, who was uh, Montaigne's, Michel de Montaigne's editor, posthumous editor. Um, I've read Montaigne for a long time, and, and in the cracks in between, you, every now and again, you, you hear about Marie de Gournay, but it, it, she, she gets a sort of sentence here or there, and if you read a biography, she gets a bit of a cross-paragraph when it comes to editing. Um, and it started to dawn on me how interesting and intriguing this relationship was. Quite hard to cut to find, because there's only one biography of her, and it's a, it's a sort of 1950s, late 1950s hagiography by a woman who obviously adored this woman. She was a, you know, a person who became a, a professional writer in, in, the, in the 17th century and an extraordinary creature. Um, but it, I don't think it's the most... Um, I don't think it's the finest piece of um, biography that's ever been written, but it's all I had um, and various other papers and things. So I started reading, and then, well, the novel was there, really. The point about her is that at the age of... Well, first of all, she was uneducated because she was a woman, a child, a girl child. Um, But her father had a bit of a library, and she just started living in the library as a child, Um, taught herself to read and write Latin. I don't know how. And read all the books in the library, and then one day got hold of a copy of of the first two books, because the third hadn't come out, of, um, of Montaigne's essays, and was in such a state after she'd read it that she had to be revived with hellebore, as, you know, women used to have to be revived when they got overexcited. Anyway, she got very overexcited. Um, she was 18 when she read it, 
um, and really seemed to understand that this was something extraordinary. These essays had really not been done before in quite the same way. So she was a, an amazing young woman and um, longed to meet him. And then uh, we have a dream come true story. She writes to him. He arrives in Paris after a lot of difficulty. And she happens to be in Paris as well. And she writes to him. He comes around the next day knocking on the door. It's like, I don't know, Johnny Depp or choose whoever, whatever. Um, Nicole Kidman. Um, anyway, the dream came true. He knocked on her door and for whatever reason, he made her his adopted daughter, his intellectual adopted daughter, as it were, um, either to get away from her because he suddenly realised he'd made a terrible mistake and he had a stalker, um, or because he was very impressed. He's, uh, you know, who knows? Um, there's no correspondence between them, which is sort of strange, because one would imagine if he had written to her, she would have kept the letters. However, the next time we hear about them, he actually goes to visit her in Picardy. He's been very ill in Paris, and Picardy probably is quite a nice place to recuperate. So he goes and he stays more or less for three months. He comes and goes a bit, but basically he's there for three or four months, um, working on the final book, working on his, you know, on, on revisions and, and editing the, the, the last volume. Um, and that's where I'm going to read from. It's, it's him and her in her house, working away together, teenage fan's dream come true. Oh, yes, I suppose it really has to be a bit like, you know, Nabokov, Nabokov, had come and knocked on my door when I was sort of 18 and said, hi. Lolita. <laughs> okay, here we are in Picardy. I'm not going to stand up, but, you know, do my best. They took regular daily walks along the river path. At his request, she waited back at the house while he took a solitary stroll in the mornings. But in the afternoon, once the sun had grown cooler, she accompanied him along what she called Monsieur Montaigne's promenade. It was the time that Marie most treasured. They talked together. She asked him questions, put points to him, and drank in his answers, though always a little bemused by the light-hearted way he seemed to approach the serious topics she brought up. Usually, the subject of their conversation arose from whatever they'd been working on that day. Why did you make that change from that monster Caligula to that villain Caligula? One should always avoid insulting the innocent, he said lightly. The space between Marie's eyebrows narrowed. But Caligula wasn't innocent. He was a wicked tyrant. Montaigne made more effort. I mean that monsters are innocent. I don't want to insult them by comparing Caligula to them. Marie's brows remained knitted. He elaborated. A monster is born or is a sport of nature that we in the ordinary majority happen to think strange. It's not by definition nor by will bad only different. A villain, on the other hand, chooses his villainy. 
He paused and glanced at her, then added, a monster need not be a villain. Marie's face cleared as she grasped his point. Oh, I see. But who knows, my dear, perhaps I'm wrong. How can one be sure that even villainy is purely a man's free choice? Now you've worried me. Perhaps I might be doing Caligula an injustice. Oh, no! She rushed to reassure him, stopping and placing a hand on the sleeve of his doublet. I'm sure he was a very terrible man. Suetonius is quite definite about it. Montaigne smiled a little wistfully. Just a poor joke. Let's leave Caligula a tyrant and keep the monsters blameless. Montaigne knew well enough by now that Marie had no capacity for playfulness, but it was deep in his nature to play. Playing was his way to think, and possibly, too, her solemnity provoked in him the wish for mischief. He had the education and confidence, and perhaps also no option but to indulge it. One day, at the height of summer, Montaigne and Marie took their regular afternoon walk, and Marie brought up the subject of love. Exemplary love, of course. Bearing in mind Plutarch's views on the distinction between love and marriage, she wanted to know what he thought of a story she had read not so long ago that took a different view, yet nonetheless had a high moral purpose. It's just a little novel, and therefore not serious, as you and I know, and yet, as I read it, I couldn't help but feel that it dealt with great themes, loyalty, devotion, selflessness and betrayal. Aren't all these subjects essential to the development of the human soul? And so why shouldn't we take such a work seriously too? It concerns a princess who runs away when the man she loves, uh, sorry, who runs away with the man she loves rather than obeying her father, the king, who has arranged a marriage for her according to his need for an alliance with someone for whom she could never feel anything. The sun was hot still, but occasionally a light breeze blew. Montaigne felt it now, a cooling breath of air against his face. It was delightful, and he waited for the moment it took to pass before answering Marie, closing his eyes to intensify the pleasure until the thick heat returned. Surely it's the duty of a daughter and a princess to obey her father and king, he said. What has love got to do with marriage? If she were a wise woman, she would have married, as she was told, and made the best of the man she loved in some private corner of the palace. Marie worked hard to conceal her disapproval at such duplicity, to say nothing of the disturbing image the private corner brought to her mind. She wished he wouldn't make such jokes and try to draw him back to the seriousness of the topic under discussion. The only honourable way to live is to be true to yourself, isn't that so? Certainly not. The honourable thing to do is whatever is best first for your country and then for your family. You're confusing being true to yourself with indulging yourself. What became of this wayward young woman? She was betrayed by the man she loved, the one for whom she had given up everything. Aha! A knowing nod of the head suggested that he was not at all surprised. They were shipwrecked on the shore of another land, as they deserved. A small smile played across the corner of his mouth. Marie's face set stubbornly against what she was fairly certain was his levity, and she continued her story. A nobleman of the land where they were washed ashore fell madly in love with the princess, and the young man showed himself to be faithless. He became entranced with the nobleman's sister. The wretch, 
like all of us, I'm afraid. Men are not to be trusted, none of us. That is the lot of women. More importantly, love is not to be trusted. Whatever next, I hope you're going to tell me that they had a double wedding and that all was well. But I suspect that the princess's disobedience will have to be punished. Yes, yes, of course, Marie agreed heartily, not hearing the ennui in Montaigne's voice. Of course she must be punished, and yet there is nobility and glory in it. He was gazing now at the opposite bank of the river as they walked, almost certainly not visualising the awful quadrangle Marie continued to describe. The nobleman thought mistakenly that the princess and her lover were married. They would have been, naturally, being both well-born, but they hadn't had a chance to do so since they ran away. So the nobleman decided to kill the lover to make the princess free to marry him. Goodness, was there no easier way? This seems to be an unnecessary complication of an already knotty problem. This time she caught his tone and glanced sharply at him. He looked contrite. Please continue. The faithless lover, however, offered the princess to the nobleman in return for his sister. So the killing wasn't carried out, but the princess overheard the conversation between them and realising that she was vilely betrayed by her beloved, decided to pretend to love the nobleman. I am dizzy with the labyrinthine byways of the human heart. Montaigne clasped a hand to his brow. It's more like heartlessness. Montaigne let out an encouraging laugh at what might almost count as a jest if it had not been spoken in more in a corrective tone of a schoolmistress. And so I suppose it doesn't end happily for all at this point. Well, and so she agreed to marry the nobleman, but only on the condition that he prove his love to her by promising to kill one of the servants who, she said, had insulted her. Oh, dear, I see multiple tragedy ahead. And great nobility, monsieur. The princess wrote a heartbreaking letter to her lover, and that night took the place of the doomed servant in her bed. Her lover came at last to his senses after reading her pitiful farewell. He ran to her, but she wasn't in the room, and searching the palace, he finally found her horribly mutilated dead body, murdered, as she intended, in mistake for the servant. He was overwhelmed with shame and remorse, and there and then took his life. Marie was quite breathless with consequence. I suppose they were laid to rest together in the same tomb by the wicked but penitent brother and sister who were shown the error of their ways. Yes, exactly. That's just what happened. Montaigne sighed deeply and wiped his overheated face with his lace handkerchief. The breeze had dropped. This, then, is the story of a disobedient young woman who lies to several people and takes revenge on her two lovers by making one kill her and the other find her dead and kill himself. In fact a devious act of murder and suicide by sleight of hand. Marie gasped. No, no, not revenge, not murder. No murder is committed by her, and suicide is completely the wrong way of looking at it. She sacrifices herself. To what end? Well, because she's been betrayed. Because her love is like a rock. There's nothing left for her in life. Her love was true, and it will never die, no matter if the object of her love fails her. It shows us the eternal nature of true love. Can love live on without a beating heart to keep it alive? A sacrifice must be to some purpose. What is achieved by the sacrifice? 
Those who misused her and betrayed her are taught to see the terrible thing that they've done by her nobility and sacrificing herself for their redemption. A rather circular argument, I think. The redemption we have to take on trust. I don't hold out much hope for the next pair of lovebirds shipwrecked in the land of the nobleman and his sister. No, revenge and suicide are paramount in the story. A woman's way. What else can women do when they're not regarded as men's equals? Quiet. But would you have the sexes equal now? If I were you, I should settle for women being men's superiors as they are everywhere I look. She ignored this. Even she could tell that he was mocking. At least she thought he was. How can you not see the honour and grandeur of it? Then I told it incorrectly. She looked so downcast that Montaigne was once again sorry that he'd taken her seriousness so lightly. My dear Marie, I think these grand melodramas overwhelm the true, by which I mean everyday nature of human beings' dealings with one another. A serious young mind like yours needs to make a more considered exploration of the way of the world. Sentimental literature is exciting, but deceptive in its concentration on human drama. But there's so much passion and beauty in the story, it has such power. Quite so. Read them for entertainment if you must, but perhaps the kind of passion and beauty and the beautiful feelings engendered by novels are not the best way to proceed for a serious young woman who wants to be accepted by intellectual society. As for truth, it needs a sober, quiet search to find it. Truth offers very little excitement, I'm sorry to tell you. Yes, I see, Marie said, trying very hard to. It must be written with greater moral force. Its meaning, its higher meaning, must be elaborated over the simple story. The reader's attention must be drawn to the consequences to those who break the rules of family and nation, even when they're doing so from the purest motives. Montaigne merely murmured and pointed out a flight of geese rising in the sky over the Aronde. He was a little disappointed. Marie was more disappointed than she understood. In her eyes, Montaigne could never be wrong. But there was some vital part of her which was gloriously she could almost say physically, uplifted by the story of the sacrificial princess. In a different sort of way, her response to reading it matched the excitement she'd experienced reading the essays. She could perfectly well see that there were irreconcilable differences between the narrative drama written by Taimon and the remarkable philosophical works of Montaigne. Yet, reading each of them, She'd experienced the same exhilaration which began to flow and pulse through her until at last she was brought to a feeling of having burst her physical bounds. There's something lurking darkly but marvellously within her that Marie had been dimly aware of since a child, was let loose by both readings to become inextricably one with the surrounding dancing light of the world. Just as the dusty and limited library of her childhood became a place of glory when she found herself working in it with Montaigne. So in reading the Taimon story, just as much as the essays, she took leave of her small interior confinement and discovered herself out in the vastness. She'd hoped that by telling Montaigne about Taimon's story, he would explain to her that her similar response to it and to his own essays reconciled the two as different but equally vital food for her being but he suggested to her that her response to the story was of lesser value 
juvenile and emotional, not moral and elevated, as she still believed it to be. And still convinced though she was of Montaigne's rightness in all things and wanting to please him at any cost, she found it impossible to extricate the one sense of elevation from the other. She was reluctant to let go of the unaccountable pleasure her reading of the story gave her, or to lose the many moments, hours even, she had spent recalling, even reliving, the narrative and its parts, especially those thoughts about the princess whose sacrifice for love, as well as her betrayal, actually sent delicious thrills around Marie's body and made her crave its retelling. She would sink into the drama of the story like one who, waking from a delightful dream, discovers that she has the ability to drift back into it and relish it over and over again. There was so little of this narrative addiction, actually, in the essays she so admired. Just dry accounts of some classical hero or other set into an argument, or an alarmingly candid description of the writer's personal and physical predilections. She had read and passionately admired the work, but the excitement that had caused her mother to slip hellebore into her food came as well from the private times when she had contemplated the man himself, the writer, the person who had infiltrated himself into the words, whom she summoned into her dreaming presence with as much sensuous delight as the delicious moments of the faithless lover finding the bloodied corpse of his princess. Oddly to her understanding, though it was wonderful beyond words to have her hero and mentor actually present in the house, working on his masterpiece with her, walking daily beside her. She found that in moments of repose, before or after sleep, daydreaming as she watched the clouds sail across the sky, she still imagined Montaigne coming to her, offering her his friendship, his intellect, his love, as if he were not already there in the house. It was not the memory of the work they'd done together or the conversations they had had that day that played in her sleepy mind, but the same reveries of him and her, of him and her together and discovering each other that she had conjured in those days before she actually met him, when it was perfectly impossible that they should ever be in each other's presence. So it's a story about a young woman learning to read, I suppose. Um, and having been a young woman learning to read, um, I must say that I, I fell on Marie as a, you know, as, a, as, a, as a fellow devotee and found myself very disappointed. It's a book, I think, like actually all my books, about disappointment. I guess, my disappointment, her disappointment, Montaigne's disappointment. Absolutely everybody is disappointed in this book. <laughs> I think. Yeah. But then we all are, aren't we? Eventually. So what about Apology for the Woman Writing? What is this? Where does the title come from? And what does she write of her own? Yes, I missed that out, didn't I? Yes, quite important, really. She writes an awful lot of her own. She writes poetry. I think it's heroic and dreadful poetry. I've only read it in English, but there is nobody, not even her, her, you know, her biographer who adores her, who ever says that she writes well. Um, but she writes you know, the proper sort of poetry that people are supposed to write. She writes essays, very... Um, 
convoluted. What she mostly did was need money. And the way, of course, to get money was to get a pension, a royal pension. So there's an awful lot of sycophantic stuff about, you know, um, books about how to educate a royal prince when the royal prince is born and so on. Um, she's desperate for money. You know, women did not were not professional writers, or if they were, they were nuns or they were rich, and she was neither of those things. Um, so in that sense, too, she was remarkable. She had conceived of the possibility of a life of writing, um, and she conceived it out, I think, of, of more or less nothing. Um, and the men hated her. She was a blue stocking. She was plain. She was abused for her looks. She was abused for her clothes. When she died, even those who stood by her, Michael Costa, his sort of his his eulogy included the sentence. But nobody could really forgive her for her shoes. <laughs> Which I think is sort of nice, really. Um, so she was, a, you know, she she was she was. Um, a spinster. She was called the thousand-year-old spinster. She was mocked mercilessly and unfortunately fed the mockery with considerable pomposity. Um, she took up alchemy, which was quite exciting, um, and spent an awful lot of money on it, trying to make money. So, you know, the alternative was, was you know, to turn base metal into gold if you can't get a pension from the royalty. There's no, there weren't many other choices. You couldn't go cleaning or anything. Adultery. Oh, there was no lottery, yes, yes. And adultery wouldn't have done it either, no. Um, so all of, in all of this, she was absolutely admirable. She was horribly tricked and teased. Uh, some, some young men um, persuaded her that James I of England had found her work and adored it, and had requested that she write a, um, an autobiography for him. And she wrote it, and it became, you know, the, 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 the big joke of, of Paris for, for a few weeks. It's all just heartrendingly awful. And what I would like to say was that in spite of this, she was just such a fucking good writer that none of this mattered, only she wasn't. Um, and that's what's interesting in a sense, I suppose. So apology for the woman writing was precisely this. It was exactly that. It was, a, it was an answer to her critics. It's an extraordinary piece of work because it's, it's partly autobiographical and it's partly um, an explanation of how she spent her money because there was a lot of criticism that she wasted all her money. And she actually itemises how much she spent on, on, on her alchemy stuff. Um, and it wasn't as much as all that. And she, you know, she, 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 she only had, you know, one, a coach for a little while and then stopped having a coach. So it, it's a kind of very strange and, 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 and open defence of herself um, and very marvellously entitled apology for, for a woman writing. And really there was nothing I could do but take it for my own, was there? Um, since all of us in some centre apologise for writing, that is, those of us that never, you know, there are those who never apologise, it probably divides, doesn't it? Anyway, I... Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think all of us, to some extent, apologize for writing. Um, there you go. This is a lesser question, more a comment, I think. Um, I read it as the sort of uh, story, lesser story, uh, exploration of the mind state of a stalker, really, that um, she had to hold on to her view that she was the loved one of this man against all evidence to the contrary and that she went sort of successively madder and madder as she got further away from reality. Um, And the little bit of space in her mind that could support the fantasy um, in a way got smaller and smaller. And I was absolutely fascinated from that point of view. I don't know whether that was your intent, but that, that, is how I, that, that is what I saw as the theme of the book. Well, yes, I mean, in, in that, I mean that's, it's absolutely right. Her, her sense of herself, I think, was dependent on, on Montaigne admiring her. There was also a kind of practical thing, which was that you know the fact that she was Montaigne's editor helped her enormously in her career. So, in some, I think, very fundamental sense, she used him, um, and as he indeed used her, um, and I think that they were very useful to each other, um, and and it it certainly gave her you know a status. I, I think we all do. I don't know that the stalker is quite the right word. I I'd used it myself, but I, I don't think I really meant it. I think, I think that sense that we, in the first place, that we are valued by those we admire, by those people that, who, who do things that we want to do ourselves and we admire, is it's something we're all after. I think being deluded is also something that's fairly common. Um, among us all, and our, our wish to be all sorts of things. And what there also was, I think, was a kind of terror, a writerly, if I may use the word terror, um, that I suspect must be fairly common, but anyway, it's, it's common to me, uh, which is the notion that if you've always wanted to write, if you've been a reader and then a, a and somehow writing is is the thing that you have to do, there is always that terrible possibility that you're no good at it, that you're not very good, you're not good enough. Um, and of course, most people aren't good enough. You know, it's how many people in any generation are really good enough? Um, so that was the heartbeat of the novel for me. It was it was the idea of somebody who remarkably had envisioned herself um, as something, something she urgently wanted to be, and rather strangely, and had nothing really to do with any, you know, there was no reason for it. Um, And then had to delude herself, I think, um, as I suppose all writers have to delude themselves that what they've done, you know, is okay. you know, fail again, fail better. The idea that you can fail better seems to be immensely optimistic, really. Um, so, 
I think that's what it was at the basis of it for me as, as the writer. But that's you know, that's. that's Sorry. As a reader, you could do whatever you like. It's none of my business, really. In fact, I don't know why you're all here, actually. I just get on with it, you know. It's all, we have nothing to do with each other, really. Any more? Thank you. Hello. Um, one of the things about um, books and life, to some extent, is that the things that make men ambitious and interesting and complicated are things that make women borderline nutters. And it sounds to me as though Marie provides you with some challenging material in that context. And I wondered if writing this book gave you a different perspective on that. On what? <laughs> on whether the things that make men interesting are intrinsically things that make women crazy in the eyes of others. Well, I think in the historical context, that's right. You know, I mean, anyone crazy enough to want to be a professional writer if they're a woman without money, um, you know, she's already got a major problem. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, contextually again, craziness is is you know, it's, it isn't isn't the story, uh, or it's a different you know, it's a kind of craziness, but it's a kind of craziness that works because she you know, she died aged eighty. Um, a, a professional writer finally getting her her royal pension you know even had enough money towards the very end um, no I don't no I see what you're saying and, and, and it's very easy you know the laughing young men I must say I found them um I found well, I found them foolish and you know and and easy, but you know people who 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 easily slip into a, a role are not very interesting as the young men weren't very interesting. She is interesting um, I don't know, I don't know I mean I, there's no question that being a woman was you know catastrophic um, if you wanted to be independent and and be a writer, be a playwright or, or whatever it was. It was virtually impossible. But she did it. Um, I think for me, it was this this double thing of the extraordinariness of this girl. You know, there's a you know long kind of passage at the beginning of her. You know, in the library. Um, you know, just being a child in the library. Um, and, you know, I guess we've all been children in the library, you know, entranced by books. It's been much, much easier, obviously, for us to, you know, either become lifelong readers or writers or whatever. Um, I think the fact that she conceived of the idea, you know, that she could be... that, that You know, the idea of the writer behind the book um, was extraordinarily interesting. So, yeah, or no... Yeah, if you like. Um, it's, aside from the story, I thought one of the most amazing things is the description of learning to read, you know, when she's in the library at the beginning, um, and that kind of avidity and that kind of the hunger for reading. And, um, and then that sort of dawning that the, the books have authors. You know, it's almost like the kind of authors rise up as real human beings. I thought, 
that description of that was very amazing, actually. Do you want to talk about that? Well, yes, because story, you know, it does start off with stories, doesn't it? it you know, and and somehow you 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 come round to the notion that somebody makes a story. It's a sort of shocking idea, actually. I mean, as a child, you know, you're told stories, and then eventually you read stories, um, and they're, they're just sort of solidly there. Um, but yes, I like the idea that that. Um, that she came to the conclusion that somebody had written the books and that books were ideas, were sort of boxes, as it were, of ideas, and, and that ideas could be graphs. I mean, in a, you know, a low technological society, it must be... It was an extraordinary machine, a library, of course, wasn't it? Um, so I was, I was very moved by that, and I liked the idea of sort of tracing what might happen when, you, when, you, you know, when you're just left alone in, in, a, in a place um, with a lot of books and what you might come to. It's like James I, wasn't it, who said that if you brought up... Um, he was perfectly certain that if you brought up an infant on its own in an island, it would end up speaking English. <laughs> Those were the days, eh? Um, what happens if you put somebody, you know, a, a person without an education who's... Of course, the other thing is she doesn't want to be domestic. She doesn't want to, um, she doesn't want to do this. She doesn't like doing that stuff. She doesn't want to, you know, cook and clean and, and, and run a household, as indeed Montaigne didn't. Um, he hated, the, you know, having to be in charge of, of, of the, the household and so on, um, but had to do it as a duty, and she had to do it as a duty. Um, but having decided that she didn't really want to run a house um, and that she didn't want to be a nun, there was this just wonderful gap, you know. I mean, presumably, that's a kind of, in some, in some way, these limitations do provide the possibility of, um, of an extraordinary idea happening. Mostly they didn't, mostly, of course, but, you know. Um, before, just before the, your answer to the last question, you said that in a way her ambition was was crazy to try to be a writer at, at that time. But it seems to me from your very last remarks that if a woman in those days wanted to achieve something, wanted to have a profession, actually, of all, however the odds, of all the available possible professions, that of writing was probably the one in which, in which she would have been the most likely to be successful. Suppose she liked music, she would not have been able to be uh, in a conservatory or do anything mm. like that. Suppose she liked painting, she again would not have been in any kind of school, she would not have been an apprentice to a famous painter. She would probably would not have been able to run a business properly given the property laws at the time. Um, I mean, that does not leave, you know, an mm. awful lot of choice. Mm. And in fact, there were women writers. I mean, she's, of course, at her time, she's one of the first, but by the time we get into the 18th century, oh, yes. I mean, yes. they're not common, but, yes. you know, there are quite a lot, and some of them, you know, we remember the names and mm. we read them and they're in print and mm. so on and so forth. So in terms of career objectives, um, Marie's choice was not completely absurd. And and I can see why you you know you found her quite an appealing thing because 
one needed a phenomenal amount of determination to do it, but it mm. was not an irrational choice. Um, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I, absolutely. Later on, there were there were plenty of women, and I've never seen any reason why. You know, you know, after all, you know, you have babies and you can write books, right? Very handy. Um, but at that point, I think there hadn't been a kind of notable writer, Christine de Pizan. Um, it's a hundred years before. Um, and on the whole, the smart move, the smart you know, um, career move is to become a nun when you can do all the intellectual stuff you want to do. I mean, that's, you know, that would have been a, you know, the thing to do, but she didn't want to do that either. Um, that's what strikes me as interesting. And the fact that she had such an incredibly difficult time in spite of being Montaigne's editor, and he was rated um, at the time, the fact that she had such trouble getting any money, any any pension from anyone, um, suggests that it wasn't. It just wasn't that easy. I mean, if you had money, you could be a writer. If you were, you know, a princess, you could be a writer. I don't think it was that easy to survive if you were poor. I mean, she wasn't poor like she was a peasant, but she was. You know, she was on a very very limited income. Um, and I have to say that if you have to earn your living as a writer today, it's a bit of a worry. <laughs> and my advice is to marry someone rich. <laughs> However, failing that, the chances of you getting a royal pension are very slim, trust me. So there are, there is, you know, there's, it's, it's, um, it's a very uncertain um, route, becoming a professional writer. Uh, if you haven't got, you know, any kind of backup. So, I oh know, I think, I think it was an extraordinary thing for her to consider that she could do. I mean, I think it's extraordinary that any writer considers they can write, um, they can do it, you know. Um, I think it's sort of surprising. Um, Were you satisfied with that answer? He doesn't matter whether he's... He doesn't really matter if he's satisfied. I mean, the other thing... <laughs> The other thing is that, of course, there were women who had salons. Um, and she did eventually. She, 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 she went to, um, you know, La Reine Margot, who had her salon, you know. Um, what's her name? You know, Marguerite. Thank you, of Navarre. Um, had a wild and wonderful salon. And she did do that. And, and, and uh, Margot made her her librarian. So clearly kind of recognised something or other and then gave her a pension, a small pension, but, you know, better than nothing. Um, so there was another route, but you had to have money to have a salon. And she did start, she did in fact have a salon, um, which was sort of not terribly good, didn't work out awfully well, on account of her poverty. I mean, you know, poverty is really rather important. Well, no, also her personality, but <laughs> poverty mostly. <laughs> Hmm? The shoes, that's right. You can't really be talk about literature and wear crappy shoes, can you? <laughs> not on. Sorry, I was just about to say, is there anyone towards the back of the room? Because you've been rather concentrating on the front. Hello. Um, does it feel as though we're 50 Maries who've turned up to see you? <laughs> nope. I've just, I've just heard you, somebody say that they're readers. You're readers, I'm writer. I mean, you know, 
I don't know what you do in your in the rest of your time, but at the moment you're you're reading. I no. Um, now I'm going to get very scared. It's like misery, isn't it? <laughs> this is really my version of misery, I suppose, isn't it? Now I come to think of it. Yes. Um, no, it doesn't, because I'm just going to, you know, float away into the background. And unfortunately, I'm not Montaigne, so, you know, I don't have to worry about it too much. You just get on with whatever you do. That's it. I'm at the back, so I can't see anyone at the front. <laughs> I have to move around. I'll keep my eye open. There's, no. there's so much as a move, I'll let you know. Oh, and someone here, there's somebody here, wait, wait. I really um, enjoyed the character of her servant, Jamin, um, and it seemed to me that you did too, because, well, there's so little of, the in, of her in the historical records, <laughs> but at the same time I wondered whether, was it not slightly unfair to Marie to give her a servant who was so much more clear-sighted in the matter of <laughs> literature than she was? I know. Do you know, it's a really funny thing, but in almost none of the reviews was she mentioned the servant, Jamine. It was hardly noticed. And she actually was, you know, my character, really. She was, she was, she was the one. Um, there is a mention of a servant, Jamine, who is with her until her death um, for 30 or 40 years. And she is clearly devoted, and she's mentioned as a devoted servant. Very strangely, at some point, she changes her will so that um, she, if, she is to, if she died before Marie, Marie would inherit, who, no, not very much, I imagine, but whatever. Um, and that's about it. There's really nothing else about Jermaine um, that we know about. So naturally, she, she, I saw her as my creature, really. Um, and Jamine is, yes, I know, it wasn't fair, possibly. Um, Jamine is um, a girl who Marie assumes is illiterate. She comes as a young woman, and the assumption is that, that, that uh, Marie assumes that she's illiterate and tries to teach her to read. Actually, she can read. Um, but there is something in her that refuses um, to allow Marie to know that she can read. Um, she secretly reads Montaigne, she secretly reads Marie, but she never, ever lets on um, that she is a reader. Um, and I like to think potentially a writer. Um, you know, clearly she is the, the good writer that I needed somewhere in that book. Um, who never. I do have a sneaky... I have a feeling that everyone goes, oh, when I say it, but I'll say it anyway, and you can go, oh... Um, there's a part of me that thinks, if only I'd never started writing. It took me ages to start writing. Um, I was in my 30s before I actually wrote a book. And there is a part of me that admires that person who re flatly refused to write for 36 years. Um, there is something about doggedly and honestly refusing to write that, that I that seems to me to be, I'm sorry, this is a very terrible word I'm going to use, authentic. I take it back. Um, I mean, clearly, and, and, and at one level, you know, that if you never write, nobody ever knows that you are not 
a great writer. Uh, you know, it's, it's a terribly risky thing to do, to start writing. And I'm astonished sometimes that I actually took the risk and sometimes I'm sorry I did. I like the idea of being, you know, um, a mysterious person who might have been a really good writer. Um, so there's Jamin, and, and, and she's my creature. Um, but yes, it, it is sort of unfair, but on the other hand, there must have been other women who, you know, who, who read and who might have written, but who never did for whatever reason. Anyway, I just like stubbornness, so I wrote her in. Sorry, I take your point. Uh, to my shame, I have to say I've hardly if read any, if, if any, uh, Montaigne, and I want to do some with or before reading your novel. Um, there must be several translations, and mm. will your novel help me to know where I should begin, or do Ever I just so get much. stuck in? At the back, I've got a bibliography. Oh, you can read everything, and you'll know everything and more than I know. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a dog, basically, there's a Donald Frame translation and there's um, the Screech. And they're both fine, they're both good um, and different, they're quite fun to read. And then, of course, there's the Florio, which is the Elizabethan translation, which is very wonderful, but it's, 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 it hasn't got them all. Um, you just, you know, dive into either of them. I'd skip the first few essays if I were you, because they're a bit, you know, practice -y. Boring. No, well, uh, you come back to them I've later, tried. but it's interesting. Um, you know, they're interesting, but, you know, I would start a few essays in. In terms of writing about the characters of Montaigne and Marie, you obviously were going, obviously you invented a lot, but you were obviously also going on what you knew of them, and so I'm interested in that. But I'm also thinking, particularly in the passage that you read out, the discussion of the novel, it seemed to be so typical of lots of discussions in later French literature between attacking women for writing these high-flown, sentimental, over-noble no novels, uh, you know, and male writers attacking them for that just from whether a more classical or a more down-to-earth Aesthetic. So I suppose I'm wondering about the mixtures of invention, of biography, of history that went into your conception of your novel. Mm. Well, it all goes in, and it always all does, whether it's a, a, what they call a historical novel or not. You know, um, I was sort of interested in the business of the novel and fiction and non-fiction, which is a kind of ancient and, and still ongoing um, discussion about you know which is serious and which is true um and and it's a difficult discussion which i don't know the answer to because i have a lot of problems about fiction and non-fiction for the life of me i don't understand apart from the need to shelve things and even then you know daunt books shelves things geographically which you know, seems to solve the problem really or solve a problem um so that's another. That was very much a you know part of what was going on when I wrote it. The 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 the, the question of um, of fiction and of course the question of how much how much you make up. I yeah I'm a bit anal really, and so I found it really quite I found it quite difficult to 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 alter what was absolutely certain. Um, so I you know I didn't do anything sort of 
chronologically very peculiar. Um, I simply, you know, picked up and ran with the stuff that was invisible, which is, seems to me, you know, more interesting. I, I was quite worried, you know, about getting details right. But on the whole, it's it's like, a, I mean, the, the book for me is, was like, um, you know, one of those ghastly modern plays with very blank sets. I'm not really interested in doing, you know, detailed historical um, pictures of things. Uh, so it wasn't terribly problematic, but I did give it to somebody who knew the period. And I did have a wardrobe there that wouldn't have been there. I had crossed out wardrobe and put chest instead. Um, but I think that was the only mistake. So there's part of me that wants to get, you know, the history right. But, I, you know, I mean... Uh, I don't think the period all that much matters. It strike, struck me as really interesting how how unnecessary um, period stuff was in the story because it's, it's you know it, it would work for now. One of the things that happened also in the reviews was was people saying that it was it was you know very and it was reviewed as about Montaigne, um, and people got kind of hung up on, you know, on the Montaigne thing. And it crossed my mind as it hadn't crossed my mind before. I could have actually written this novel, but about two people called something quite different, you know, either in the 17th century or last week. Um, but I think that would have been a bit coy, really. I don't know, you know, so I didn't. But I could have done. It might have, you know, it might have caused less difficulty. But it doesn't matter one way or the other. I didn't want to do an essay on, on you know, the history of, of women's writing. Um, I did want, you know, to engage somewhat the, the idea of, you know, the romantic novel and women. Um, but you see, again, it's problematical because this novel is so ghastly that she actually wrote. I mean, it really is awful um, and melodramatic and full of moral stuff um you really you know had it been a really good novel there's a you know i would have had to write a different book and it i would have liked it to i you know i wish she was a good writer but the fact that she wasn't did make it quite delicious to write about <laughs> thank you for joining us for this london review bookshop event for more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>